verses 1 through 24. You may remember that at the end of uh, 1 Kings 11, we concluded the reign of King Solomon. Uh, Solomon's reign is one which had glorious beginnings, but a not-so-glorious end. We come now to... Um, well, in the end of chapter 11, you may recall as well uh, that because of Solomon's idolatry, the prophecy was made uh, that the kingdom indeed would be ripped away from his son, that two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, would be preserved for his son Rehoboam, but ten tribes uh, would be separated from that. So that prophecy was made in 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 12. Now we're going to see that prophecy come to its fulfillment. And we're going to see in particular the exact way that it does. And it's a way that contains many lessons for us uh, today. Let's hear God's word now. 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Rehoboam, and you'll remember Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Uh, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, well, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. 
And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's look once again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we now pray that light would shine from your holy word, that you would give to the one who preaches it clarity and power, and, O Lord, that by your Spirit you would till up the soil of our hearts and plant your word that it would bear abundant fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On March 30th, 1867, the U.S. Secretary of State, William Seward, uh, signed a treaty with uh, Russia, in which he purchased all of Alaska for $7 million, for two cents an acre. Though uh, we can see now that that was a very good price, at the time, the action was ridiculed in Congress and in the press. It was known as Seward's Icebox, or President Andrew Johnson's Polar Bear Garden, or most commonly, Seward's Folly. Well, time has proven uh, that this was no foolish action uh, indeed, that despite a slow start in U.S. settlement, the discovery of gold in 1898 brought a rapid influx of people into the territory of Alaska, and this territory, now a state, of course, rich in natural resources, uh, with an indigenous people uh, there and many who have moved there, has contributed uh, to American life uh, ever since then. So Seward's folly was perhaps not so foolish after all. Rehoboam's folly, on the other hand, is foolish indeed. And that's what we have listed for us here, or that's what we have described for us in 1 Kings chapter 12. It is what I have entitled Rehoboam's uh, Folly. And there are many lessons for us to learn. We're going to do it today under two different headings. 
Uh, first of all, we're going to see a description of Rehoboam's folly, and secondly, the consequences of Rehoboam's folly. A description of it, verses 1 through, really down through verse 14, and then from verse 15 through verse 24, uh, we're going to see the consequences of Rehoboam's uh, folly. Well, first of all, a description of uh, Rehoboam's uh, folly. And we really can summarize Rehoboam's folly under two different things. There seem to be two primary things uh, in which he demonstrates real foolishness, something that you and I need to learn from uh, today. And the first of those two things is that he chooses the wrong counselors. Uh, Let's begin uh, the story uh, in verse 1 here. There's a kind of summit meeting called in a place called Shechem. Shechem was a place of significance. Uh, This was the first city that Abraham had visited so long ago in the promised land. It was a place where Joseph's bones were buried. It was a place where Joshua had renewed God's covenant with Israel. Rehoboam thought this was a very good place as well for him to begin his reign. Rehoboam surely had hoped for a rather easy meeting, a peaceful meeting in Shechem. But that wasn't uh, to be. Instead, we are told that uh, as Jeroboam, who had been away, as soon as he heard of this meeting, he, as sort of uh, increasingly the leader of uh, the northern tribes of Israel, approached Jeroboam and they begin to ma- and they make a request of him. Uh, they tell him that his father Solomon had been a rather hard taskmaster. And they now want a lighter load. Could you ease the burden a little bit? Lower taxes, less work. Now it's interesting, different commentators assess the claim of these men uh, differently. It's hard to note quite what to make of it. Was Solomon really such a hard taskmaster? Was uh, oppression and high-handedness are the tools of Solomon's trade. It was certainly a period of a tremendous prosperity, perhaps to a degree uh, this was true, but perhaps as well there was a little bit of a kind of political opportunism at work too. Uh, some people kind of seeking to take advantage of the transition of power uh, to get as much as they can from uh, the new king. And so they make this request. Solomon was a hard taskmaster. Can you lighten our load a little bit? I wonder, how would have you responded to this kind of request? Suddenly, this new king needs wisdom. He needs boatloads of wisdom to know what to do. I think it's rather telling that he doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God's face. That would have been the best start, wouldn't have it? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him come to the Lord and ask, James tells us, who gives liberally and without reproach. When in need of wisdom, we ought to pray. Rehoboam doesn't do that, but instead he seeks out two different counselors. He says, go away from me three days. Let me mull over this problem. And he seeks counsel. The first group from which he seeks counsel are the older men, literally the elders, seems to be those in a, in a position of, 
a rule and authority who had been there during Solomon's reign. You think of Solomon's reign, especially in his early years. He was renowned, wasn't Solomon, renowned for extraordinarily godly wisdom. These were the men who had surrounded him at that time. And they give a piece of advice to Rehoboam. We're going to get to that advice a little bit later. They give one bit of counsel. Well, there's a second then, a second group of counselors, and Rehoboam goes to them as well. These were his contemporaries. Rehoboam was uh, 41 at the time. I want to say a very, very young man at the time, right? Uh, But anyway, uh, 41 years old, and uh, Rehoboam had a bunch of his buds that he grew up with, uh, that he surrounded himself with. These were people... Uh, who would have had little experience, uh, certainly no reputation for godliness. Uh, But these were the people with whom Rehoboam kind of naturally identified. In fact, uh, you'll notice in verse 9, it says, What do you advise that we answer this people? We, you know, him and his friends. What should we say? Well, with these two groups... We ask the question, whose counsel should have Solomon, or excuse me, Rehoboam, been more prone to follow? Well, it should have been the first group, shouldn't have been. These were the ones with experience. Under uh, Solomon's reign, they seemed to have a kind of uh, mature wisdom. But the second group were, again, Rehoboam's friends. And they told Rehoboam, likely, the kinds of things that he wanted to. Uh, to hear. Now, this passage is not saying that the aged are always right and that the young are always stupid. Uh, It happens that way frequently, but I have met, in my life at least, many foolish old men. I've met some wise young people as well. So this is not an absolute rule that you always go with those who are older, but I think this is saying, I think the lesson is this, That, well, first of all, that we are to get counsel. That's a good thing. Without counsel, plans fail, Proverbs 15, 22 tells us. But with many advisors, they succeed. But in getting counsel, to get the right counsel. The counsel that we should get isn't simply what we want to hear, but rather we should seek counsel from those who are godly and those who are mature. Sometimes uh, people like to go to their friends because they know that they'll get support. You know, that's that's the kind of language they put. Well, I just need some people to support me. (laughs) Sometimes what we mean by that is I need some people to tell me what I already want to do is okay. (laughs) Right? And in reality, that's not always what we need. What we need are people who are godly, who are going to speak into our lives and give us the counsel that is best. And that's what Rehoboam surely should have done. It's what you and I should do uh, as well. So that's the first thing of his folly, that he chooses the wrong counselors. But now, secondly, the second part of his folly is that he chooses the wrong kind of leadership. He chooses the wrong kind, or we might say the wrong uh, style, maybe, that's, although that's, uh, I don't love that word, but the wrong kind of leadership. Listen to the counsel that is given. Uh, The elders gave him the counsel. Well, 
if you exercise a little restraint with these people today, you are going to win their allegiance. If you actually listen to their concerns, if you show respect for their persons, if you have a little bit of humility, an attitude of a servant toward those who are under you, if you exercise a little moderation in your exercise of power, you will win over these people. That was their counsel. But the young men gave a very different kind of counsel. They said, basically, that nothing will so secure your position as a little bit of intimidation. And they gave him even a couple of proverbs to use. (laughs) They said, well, make it clear, well, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Well, say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll add to your yoke. He disciplined with whips. I will discipline with scorpions. Okay, and so he makes his point, uh, not with gentle words, but with words, a little bit of sarcasm, and certainly some harshness to them. And it is that, it is that kind of leadership that he chooses. He chooses the counsel of the young men rather than those who are older. And again, we can look at this episode and say, well, what should have Rehoboam done? Well, as we look at the example of all of the Bible of what godly leadership entails, it seems that the elders were giving the better advice. The scriptures make it clear that if you are called to leadership, whether it's leadership in government or leadership in the church or leadership in your family or leadership in a business, that what you are primarily called to in that position of leadership is to care for those who are under you. Your calling is to protect and to provide for others. To lead and to guide for the good of those who are under you. Not to rule in order to bolster your own ego or to secure your own place. Now this doesn't mean that you are always to rule in a way that those who are under you are going to be always satisfied with everything that you say. No, sometimes godly leadership means to actually take the lead and to bring people in a direction that is the best. But what they ought to know in our manner of speech, in our demeanor, in our attitude, is that we do care for them. That it's not all about me, but rather I am seeking to exercise leadership for their good. And that really is the question. Who am I leading for? Am I leading simply for myself? Or is it for the good of those who are under you? Listen to these words by Matthew Henry. I think they're so wise. He says, Note, the way to rule is to serve. To do good and stoop to do it. To become all things to all men and so win their hearts. Those who are in power really sit highest and easiest and safest 
when they take this method. What words those are. And let me just read for you some application of this that I thought was so good by Phil Riken. Uh, Riken says these words. He says, we need this same kind of leadership, that is, a servant leadership, today, in the home, in the church, and in public life. Husbands and fathers are good servant leaders when they pray for their wives as well as care for the emotional and physical needs of their children. Pastors and elders are good servant leaders when they bless the people in their churches with words of spiritual encouragement. Employers are good servant leaders when they look after the total welfare of their employees rather than simply looking at the bottom line. Servant leaders devote every possible energy to blessing the people they are called to serve, even to the point of sacrificing their own safety and prosperity. Rehoboam was placed in a position of leadership, and he did not exercise that leadership to the glory of God, but rather was a harsh and authoritarian bully in his position of leadership. And as we're going to see, this kind of folly leads to consequences uh, in his life. So we've seen Rehobo- a description of Rehoboam's folly, that he chooses the wrong counsel, wrong counselors, and he chooses the wrong manner of leadership. But now, secondly, I want us to see the consequences of Rehoboam's uh, folly the consequences of Rehoboam's uh, folly. What happens as a result of his uh, folly? Well, uh, we can read of this in the verses that follow, verses 15 through 24. We're going to skip over verse 15 right now. We'll come to it uh, at the end of today's sermon. Uh, But verse 16 tells us that when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, The people answered the king. And they answer in these words, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, O David. What do they do? But they say, Well, Rehoboam, we want nothing of your kingship. And they suddenly rebel against the king. They leave... uh, 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 his authority. They, they, they secede, essentially, uh, from the nation as, as a whole. Well, Rehoboam, once again, acting in a foolish way, uh, tries to bring them in line. And how does he do it? Well, he sends Adoram, the taskmaster over forced labor. Of all the people that you could have sent, Rehoboam, you send the one who is the taskmaster over forced labor. It's not exactly a move calculated to secure reconciliation. He's going to bring them into line with a heavy hand. Well, I don't think he fully calculated the response that they would have because immediately when Adoram goes there, they stone him to death with stones, a life taken as a result of Rehoboam's folly. What a consequence there is to his action. And so now he is dead. Rehoboam realizes that this secession is for real. He mounts 
a chariot and he gets out of Shechem as fast as he can and he goes and flees to Jerusalem. And verse 19 gives us this statement. And so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Rehoboam's foolish action led now to this most tragic consequence, which was the division of the nation of Israel, the very nation which was to be the kingdom of God uh, here on earth, this nation state preparing us for the coming of our Lord. This Israel is now divided. And divided, uh, divided as a result of Rehoboam's foolish action. Well, we say this. We don't want to put it all maybe at Rehoboam's feet. Um, certainly Jeroboam and these northern tribes have fault as well. Uh, the language that they use here is rather striking language when they say, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. This reflects the language of the very covenant that had been made with David, where the Lord had promised that he was going to have one of David's descendants on his throne. And so this northern kingdom, now in leaving David and David's line, is saying, Uh, that we will have nothing to do with God's appointed leader over us. And so there is foolishness and rebellion in in what they are doing. They are willingly abandoning Judah, the very tribe through whom God said the Messiah was going to come. And indeed, uh, the real uh, state of their hearts, their unbelief and their sheer rebellion is going to quickly become all too evident next week as we look at the kind of kingdom that Jeroboam establishes and the false and idolatrous worship that he immediately sets up in the northern kingdom, we see that indeed there is plenty of folly to go around there as well. They were responsible for the action that they made in departing from Israel. And yet, we say it's maybe not all laid at Rehoboam's feet that's true. But surely Rehoboam contributed to all of this, did he not? Rehoboam's arrogance alienated these northern tribes. And as one commentator, I think, rightly put it, he says, as so often, rigid stupidity by one party forces the other to make an impulsive decision. Rigid stupidity by one party, forces the other to make an impulsive decision. Or, as Ralph Davis put it, another commentator, he says, pig-headedness splits a kingdom. And indeed, the history that follows all of this is tragic. Uh, These tribes are going to be divided. Uh, The north is going to exhibit consistently a godlessness and increasing idolatry. And finally, The northern ten tribes are going to be destroyed at the hand of the kingdom of Assyria. It's a tragic, tragic consequence that comes as a result of this folly. And it's a reminder to you and to me that the decisions that we make do have consequences. They affect the people around us. And when we exhibit the kind of Uh, self-centeredness and arrogance, the kind of stupidity that Rehoboam uh, demonstrates, it has an impact on others. 
And instead of reclaiming others who perhaps are prone to go their own way, it instead drives them further away. That's what we see going on in this in this place. There are consequences for his action. But this isn't the whole story. We actually move on in the story to verses 21 through 24. And there's an interesting twist that comes at the end of all of this. Rehoboam, uh, after Adoram is killed, Rehoboam goes to Jerusalem and Rehoboam is ready to make war. Okay, He is going to go all out to bring these ten tribes in line. And he begins to gather troops, 180,000 warriors from Judah, a gigantic army, perhaps a large enough army, to go against the house of Israel and to even gain victory. He is going to pull out all the stops to restore the kingdom to himself. But then at this moment, a word comes through a prophet, Shemaiah, the man of God. And this man says, at the Lord's behest, say to Ro- he tells Rehoboam and the house of Judah and Benjamin to put this war effort to rest. Don't go up. Don't fight against your relatives. And instead, every man return to his home. Why? Because the Lord says, this thing is for me. What is going on here is indeed a tragic consequence to Rehoboam's folly. The Lord is saying, adding folly upon folly upon folly is not going to make things right. (laughs) You're trying to correct the mess that you have made. And he's saying to Rehoboam, give it up. Now is a time for repentance and obedience. And amazingly enough, we read here that the people of Judah listened to the word of the Lord and went home according to the word of the Lord. After so much folly, there is actually a moment of obedience. What a reminder, I think, that is to you and to me that when we commit acts foolish things, when we make stupid decisions, that the Lord still, yet again, calls us to obey Him. And we sometimes will say, well, I've made such a mess of my life. I need to put things right and get everything back together the way it ought to be. And sometimes the Lord says, don't stop trying to do that in your own strength. Stop and obey me. Put your faith in me. Follow me. Ralph Davis says basically this same thing. I'm just going to read again an extended quote because I think he says it so well. Is this perhaps a proper point of counsel from verses 21 through 24 for Christ's people? Are there some times when we should acquiesce to our mucked up circumstances and resign ourselves to the hard providences Yahweh has imposed? That is not a welcome word to contemporary men and women, at least in the West. For some reason, we think that there must be some way to fix everything, a band-aid for every dilemma. But most sinful and thoughtful believers know that sometimes their choices, their folly, their bullheadedness, or their hard-heartedness have landed them in a network of circumstances they simply cannot undo. 
Their lives are riddled with gaping cracks that can't be caulked or with irreversible consequences that can't be righted. What can one do but listen to the word of Yahweh at that point and go on living in the kingdom as grace enables to do so? Is that mere weakness or is it finally wisdom? I think that that is a good word of counsel from that. And it really leads to the last thing that I want to say about these consequences of Rahab's folly. And that is uh, this, that as we see the consequences of his actions, that there is a reminder in these verses that even our folly is under the sovereignty of God. Verse 15 is so helpful at this point. There we are told in verse 15 the reason that the king did not listen to these northern tribes. It says, if we go back Really, if we dig down deep, why was it? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Why did Rehoboam not listen to wise counsel? And here... It speaks of the sovereignty of God. This prophecy that was given to Ahijah in chapter 11, verses 31 through 39, that the ten tribes would be given to Jeroboam. And the point is, is that God's word will come to pass, that the Lord ultimately is in control. Now, here, as in all of Scripture, God's providence does not excuse Rehoboam for his sin. Just in the same way that when our Lord Jesus Christ was put to death, he was put to death, Acts 2.23 tells us, according to the determined um, determined counsel and uh, foreknowledge of God. But, though it was planned and purposed by God, He was put to death by the lawless hands of men. God's sovereignty, man's stupidity, hand in hand with each other. The one does not cancel the other. And it certainly doesn't in Rehoboam's case here. It's not that this puts Rehoboam off the hook, not at all. But rather it is good news because what it does mean is that God rules and overrules man's stupidity, using it even for his good purposes. And that, dear friends, is extraordinarily good news for sometimes stupid people like you and like me. Because it says that you may sometimes act foolishly. And such foolishness is sin that needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there may even be continued consequences because of some of your foolishness. Nevertheless, praise God, your foolishness has not taken God off of his throne. And he is still working all things for his own glory and for the good of those who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. And that's an extraordinary thing because it means that even at times when we sin, and there are consequences for our sin, that when we bring that sin to our loving Savior and find grace and mercy in him, that we can have confidence that our God is so ruling and overruling all of our affairs, even the affairs of my own sin and the consequences that come from it, and he is going to bring about good in his kingdom and ultimately good in my life and in the lives of other believers. What an extraordinary thing it is. What a sovereign God that we serve. And don't we find this to be so true in Rehoboam's life? What he did here was foolishness. I ask you, did this foolishness of Rehoboam cancel God's plan and purpose to send forth his own son to be a savior for his people and to redeem every one of his elect from all of their sin? Not at all. We read that just in the fullness of time, God sent forth his his son. Not one moment early, not one moment late. It wasn't a plan B. He didn't have to go back to the drawing board as a result of Rehoboam's folly. But rather, God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty still nonetheless worked for his own glory and for the salvation of his people. What a sovereign God. What a God of glory and of might. He is building his kingdom. And nothing, not Rehoboam, and not any of you, can disrupt that. So what are we to do? Well, friends, when we commit folly, bring it to the cross. Bring it straight to the Lord Jesus in repentance. And in faith, look to him. And rest yourself. And a God who is bigger than, our, than, than, the, than the actions that we make, than the foolish things that we do. Rest yourself in him and trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the lessons that are to be learned in a chapter like this. And uh, Lord, we see ourselves in so much of what Rehoboam did. Lord, we pray for help choosing godly counsel and being godly leaders. Oh Lord, where we have failed, we bring that to the foot of the cross. We seek your forgiveness, O Lord our God. Grant that we in repentance and faith would turn to you, looking to you, trusting in you, resting in your sovereign care over all things. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name.